I had a record out. I was playing third keyboard for Vanessa Williams because I couldn't pay for diapers. Wow, with a record out. With a record out. With a hit. With yeah, a, with a hit. hit. Yeah. How a million long? records. I sold a million records. A million records, and you're still playing keyboard for another artist. I had to be on the road with another artist. So how long did it take before the money started to show itself? David Chance presents to you the morning meetup. Do you have an idea you need to get off the ground? Are you a small business owner looking to earn supplemental income or replace your current income? Come and join the most amazing mentorship and accountability group for entrepreneurs live with David Shands himself. That's right. This is not pre-recorded and it's not a replay. This is live every morning, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern. In addition to the live calls, you also receive a weekly individual Q&A call, a private Facebook community, access to all call replays, and access to David's list of resources and contacts you need to be in an environment of success so head over to themorningmeetup.com today for your one dollar seven day trial that's right just one dollar for seven days of access to the morning meetup take massive action towards manifesting your dreams today themorningmeetup.com and three two one you're listening to the Real Social Proof Podcast with Mr. Sleepers for Suckers himself, David Shand. Let's get it. Welcome to another edition of the Social Proof Podcast, man. We find uh, people who have actually built something, actually done something, and can teach you how they did it. And this is uh, our very first celebrity. Yeah. <laughs> you notice you're our first celebrity? <laughs> I didn't. I assume that everybody that... Uh, is on a podcast or has an Instagram mm. is a celebrity. How we look at celebrity yeah. has completely changed, and it actually has now diminished actual celebrities in some You're way. Right. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Because there are. I didn't know how to say that and not and yeah. not sound. Yeah. Because uh, it was celebrity, and now it's influencer. Mm-hmm. So we had some social media influencers, but not right. somebody who like is a a true household name. So this is exciting. But when is he going to walk in here? If you're you're listening, we have Mr. Brian McKnight, okay, legendary uh, entertainer and uh, businessman, Mr. Brian McKnight. So first off, we just want to know how your week was. My week is great. Uh, My wife says every day that she, we always hear folks talk about 2020, it's, oh, can't wait for it to be over. Our 2020 has been great. We have spent more time this year We've spent every second together, uh, which typically we do anyway. But there, there may be a week here, a week there where she's working and she can't come on the road with me. Mm-hmm. But because we're not working, we basically wake up whenever we want. We do whatever we want. Um, we <laughs> leave the house if we want or we don't leave the house mm-hmm. if we want. We go in the backyard and go right on the golf course if we feel like it that day or we don't. So we've really, you know, have taken it and tried to find the positive in a situation, I don't want anybody, anybody out there to think that we're taking their situation not seriously. Just for us, yeah. we've decided to make a positive out of it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, I, is that your life? All has that life been your life for the last X amount of years? No. So, pretty much every year, I do about 150 shows. Mm-hmm. Every other day, you're on the road. Well, yes, that's the way it seems. Sometimes there's two shows in a day, mm. but you know, on average, I think. It, it comes out to about 150. We've been together now for seven years, and my wife has seen 800 shows. Wow. 
Goodness gracious. 800. <laughs> <laughs> you, you still got it? You still got it, right? Like, you still got it? Do you still get that warm and fuzzy feeling on the inside when he hits the stage? Yeah. Every time. So in full transparency, David and I have had this warm and fuzzy feeling all week. We could not wait for today's interview. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, we could you. not wait. Look, he got his he, he got his cute little um jogger set. set. Okay, shout out to Spurgo. He's a young entrepreneur wearing his brand. <laughs> Dottie's a hater. She got her Michael Jackson bad outfit <laughs> on. I like it. All right, awesome. so Dottie, how's your week? My week was my week was awesome. So I can say, uh, because by the time this will air, it will no longer will be past the holiday season. I bought my daughter a car yesterday, nice. which was really, really huge for me. Like broke down in the middle of the dealership crying because, you know, my background, you know, I've had my ups and downs and it, it's just been like a dream to be able to buy her a car. She has a better car than me. <laughs> so my week, I think that just kind of overrode anything else that happened last week. Beautiful. Last week was great. How was yours? Oh, it was pretty cool, man. Just uh, podcasting as usual. And um, I'm I'm getting to a point. Yo, ever since that lunch we all had, mm-hmm. when you started to describe your life in the day, like the day-to-day um, activities where you and your wife, you just wake up and you just go play golf if you want to. And ever since that lunch, I said, I think I want my life to be like that. Mm. <laughs> really? So I'm, I'm in my... In my head, as I'm building my business, I'm thinking, how can I get to the point where I don't have to work at all? That well, is the goal. Well, we're going to have to dig into the story and okay. how that happened. Okay. okay. So, so walk me back um, to the very beginning before you were Brian McKnight. Well... I can't go back to before then because I've always been Brian McMahon. Mm-hmm. But if you mean, <laughs> if you mean the celebrity, the celebrity part, um, uh, it's pretty ordinary. I mean, I, I grew up, I have three older brothers. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 10, but we sang in a little barbershop quartet group uh, as the McKnight brothers. Um, and every weekend, we'd be in a church somewhere singing. Mm. Um, we were all athletes too, so you know it would be a thing where either I'd show up at halftime and play the rest of the game, mm-hmm. or I'd have to play till halftime and leave to go sing somewhere. Really? Yeah, my parents. How old? How old? So this is from. So I started playing little league football when I was six. Mm-hmm. Um, started playing basketball in third grade, so it was pretty much constant up mm-hmm. and up through high school till my till my oldest brother went away to college. So. In, when I was 10, he went away to college, so it slowed down because now there weren't four of us anymore. So then wow. it was just me going, because my mother, was a, she was the minister of music in our church, and she was a piano player. But she'd also go to other churches and play and be the minister of music there, too. So once she knew that I could play, she was like, oh, no, you have to come with me because I, now I can play the organ and you can play the piano. I was like, but mm. I don't want to play with these people. But it sucked. But that's how I learned to do everything that I do and I've been doing for the last 30 years on records because you're put in a situation where you don't want to be there, but I don't know any of these songs that they're singing. And in these churches, someone would just get up and start singing. My mother was like, play. I was like, I don't know the songs. She's like, they're all the same. I was like, no. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't read music. Right. Well, I do, but not for that particular instrument. So it, it really taught me how to, how to work on the fly. And as a producer in the, in the studio, these are the kind of things that you have to learn how to do. You can't, at least for me, because I didn't have any money, 
I didn't have money to pay other people to do things. So I learned to play all the instruments so I could just be in there. I got this block of time for this much money. So I got to I got to record five songs yeah. and I can't. I, I don't know even how to write out the stuff, so I just I just do it myself. Mm. And most of those demos sucked. I wasn't wow. very good, but I got better and I got better and I got better. Gotcha. When did so, you get on? Mm. I'm sorry. No, I wanted I wanted to know what happened. What was the transition from you being a quartet? I know you mentioned your older brother went to college, but right. did you guys ever revisit being like a group again? Well, funny you say that. My brother got to college and met five other guys and formed the group Take Six. So no. Are you kidding me? That was the end end of the McKnight Brothers. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. My brother is the founding member of Take Six. What? Why didn't it take you with him? Well, I was 10. Mm. I was 10 years old, so there was no, you know, making it into that group. And I'm not a group guy. I am a solo guy. Um, I never liked singing in the choir, even though I would. Um, I didn't really like singing with other people. <laughs> I like being a solo act. Mm-hmm. So I don't think I, I had the opportunity to join that group when one of the guys left. And I was like, yeah, of course, I was already signed to a deal, mm-hmm. but I, I wouldn't have done it anyway. So in the household was the conversation like, yo, we are going to be musicians? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Everyone on my mother's side of the family is a musician and a singer um, of some note. Um, it was a part of our life. It wasn't a profession. Because we also have a lot of professional people in our family as well. They all got degrees. They all went on to, to, to do something with their life outside of music. Mm-hmm. And nobody knew how to go about that. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a, a, a book. Like now, we have the Internet, and it can tell you, this is how you become a star. And they'll, and they'll take you down on YouTube or somewhere. Right, it right. wasn't like that in 1978 or 1985 or 1987 when I started looking into it. So... Um, you sang as it was fun and it was to uplift people and, and bring them closer to God. Yeah. To think that you could actually make a living at that, even though you're watching your favorite artists on television and, on, and listening to them on the radio, it doesn't click to you, at least not to me at the time, that that was an actual job. Mm. You know, and yeah, that, that yeah, seems yeah. strange to think of that way in 1984 or whatever it was, but nobody was thinking. Other than the gigs that we were doing in town, that right, it was right. an actual job you could have that could make you rich. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow. Yeah. So, so what was the? How old were you when you kind of released something that the world got to see that this person was a star? Oh, well, that didn't happen until I was twenty-two, but I signed that deal when I was nineteen. Mm-hmm. So I started out as a, as a songwriter. I started writing songs when I was twelve with lyrics when I was fourteen. Mm. But not thinking that it was going to present some you know, opportunity for a job or for a career. So you didn't, this wasn't the dream for you? No, I was going to hoop, for mm. sure. Mm. That was my dream. My dream was uh, I'm going to figure out a way to get on somebody's team somewhere to play mm. basketball. Now, I can play and sing, but you have to also realize in the 80s, it wasn't cool to do anything artistic. Not at school. It wasn't. Mm. Oh, no. You get picked on. You would get picked on. Yeah. You would really? get yeah. beat up. You would get, yeah, kids that went to school with me in high school, they had no idea that I could do any of this. And I wasn't trying to tell them. Why wasn't it cool? I don't understand. Why? <laughs> because back then, like, boys should be really masculine yeah, and boys, sports. Yeah, there, there may have been a thing about being masculine that, that doing drama or being in plays or mm-hmm. singing or being in chorus was not. You had to play football. Yeah. You had to play sports mm. or at the mm. very least pretend that that's what you were doing. Right. So it was, it was not a part of, that was my church life. And right. none of the kids I went to school with went to church with me. Mm-hmm. So they didn't need to know 
that all this is going on. Mm. So it was funny as after I had records out, I'd run into somebody they're like, we had no idea. I was like, yeah, I know you didn't because I didn't yeah. tell you. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> so when did when did it change? And you say, yo, this is who I am now. Well, when my brother's group got their deal, mm-hmm. I had just signed a publishing deal as a writer. Mm-hmm. And in typical little brother fashion, I said, well, if that guy can do it. <laughs> <laughs> there must be something out there for me. And then I decided to really put my effort into trying to make, to make it in as a writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought, okay, I'll write this and maybe Bette Midler will sing that. One Last Cry was written oh, for Bette, Bette Midler. Midler. Really? Wow. Yeah. She had just done Beaches, and she had that Winneath My Wings song. I was like, well, if I write something like that, maybe she could do it. Um, so you still weren't thinking, I'm going to be this singer. You wanted to be a writer. No, because I knew that I couldn't do Christian music. And I didn't know what that would do to my family. So I said, if I'm just the writer, then I don't have to be out front. Mm. I don't have to, you know, have a stigma or something. Because, you know, coming up in the church that way, there's a huge stigma. You can't go out and work for the devil. Secular music. Secular music. You can't. <laughs> and, and you know nothing about our church. Our right. church, is, they, they're real staunch about that. Because then your parents get this fellowship. Your family becomes pariahs if you're outwardly sitting. What? Oh, yeah, it was it's crazy. <laughs> it was wow. crazy. So what was that transition like when you, dis- when you had to communicate to your family, like, I am going more into the R&B space? What was that conversation you like? You know, when I signed that deal, um, I thought my mother was going to freak. And she didn't because I don't think she knew what was about to happen. I think that she thought that it was going to be kind of like what my brother did. And they, they continued to live their lives in a simple way, but they presented themselves as being the, these Christian of Santa God. Because we sing, we sing Christian music, right. but that doesn't necessarily mean our lives have to change. But if you do secular music, it automatically assumes that you're on the other side. I couldn't do that. I couldn't just do Christian music knowing that I, I can't preach to you about this life if I'm not going to live that life so it makes more sense for me to do secular music and then put inspirational music on those records because that's more of what life is actually like I couldn't be hypocritical I'm not saying that they are I think I did say that they were (laughs) but I'm not actually saying that they are but that's that's a huge thing for me but my mother didn't tell me not to but at that point I was 19 and she couldn't tell me what to do Mm. and I didn't, because I felt that that's what I needed to do. Was there backlash for her? Absolutely there was. But it's a, there's a funny thing that happens. that Hold once on, there's you, backlash for her? Oh, for sure. See, that's, the, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why, if your child decides to go a certain route, the church... <laughs> See, you all don't know about the Adventist church. See, there's... there's so a, you grew up Adventist. I grew, Advent, I grew up Adventist, oh. and... If your child is doing something wrong, let's say your daughter gets pregnant or that they, you know, your son is out here doing drugs or something, but you hold church office. Remember, mm. my mother plays the piano and she sings in the choir. Now, you can't do that anymore until you fix. <gasps> That's crazy. Wow. What's so, happening? So did this change her position in the church? Uh, it did. It did for sure. Really? Until I became successful. Okay. <laughs> this is like, that's my baby. Success changes everything. Well, no, even with the church members, mm-hmm. they thought her differently. They, yep. It wasn't so much of a, a bad thing right. anymore. The because the ties might come on in. That's right. Can we get Brian right. in the church to sing this Sunday? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, so, <laughs> this went down a whole other tangent, but yeah, right. <laughs> it's the beginning. Yeah. Wow. So wow. 22 is when you kind of hit it big. 
22 was that first album, but I don't think that's when I hit it big. I'm, I'm not sure back then on your first album, and I, I have to think back. And what year is this? So this is 1992. 92, gosh. Mm-hmm. 92. Um, it takes a minute. It takes, uh, from the books I've read, a good 10 years mm-hmm. to become successful if you do something every day yeah. and you mm-hmm. do it the right way. Uh, it took me four records to start to feel successful. Mm. Um, and I think it's because you're in the middle of it. Sure, I had songs on the charts. Yeah. I sold some records. Um, but you're on tour, you're on promotional tours, you're in the middle of it, so you don't really get to see what the dream was. The dream was you have a record, you have a hit, you play a stadium. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not what happened. Uh, my record comes out, I have a hit, and I'm playing in a place in Lafayette, Louisiana that still has chicken wire. <laughs> <laughs> so that people don't throw things at you and you get hurt. Oh, wow. Wow. This, uh, this is a real thing. And because the dream wasn't matching up with what was actually happening... It's hard to see what's coming when you're in the middle of what you're doing and it's not what you thought that it was going to be. Right. So as an individual, you have to say to yourself, okay, obviously the rest of these people have seen the way this works. And what I'm being told is that everybody starts at the bottom. So I'm going to ride this out and see where it goes. And eventually you go from chicken wire to a bar, to a club, to a theater. And now you're three records later. Mm. Then you're in a stadium. So because it took that amount of time, it didn't really matter what you could buy. It didn't really matter because you're not really enjoying it anyway because you're working. Mm -hmm. And because I am the writer and the producer of everything that I did, I didn't really have a chance to enjoy any of the success I was having. Lots of other people did. (laughs) Right, right, (laughs) right. But I didn't. So it wasn't until I took took a, a breath after any time and I was like, wow, I'm buying this house and I'm doing some other things and now I'm starting to feel the success that the chart position and the amount of records that I've sold. And again, the way music business accounting is, you're still not successful yet. Right. Because you're 18 months from a first royalty check. So when you say um, other people enjoyed your success versus you, what do you mean by that? Well, managers, record label. Mm -hmm. um, Everybody's making the money but you? Well, yeah. Everybody's making money but you. That's the way it was. Now, with streaming and things now, it's very different now. You, mm-hmm. can, you can start making money immediately. But back then, Thanks you know, I, I had a record out. I was playing third keyboard for Vanessa Williams because I couldn't pay for diapers. Wow. With a record out. With a record out. With a hit. With yeah, a, with a hit. hit. Yeah. Sold a million long? records. I had sold a million records. A million records and you're crazy. still playing keyboard for another artist. I had to be on the road with another artist. Yeah. So how long did it take before the money started to show itself? When I started having my own shows, which was very soon after that, but there was a period of time where I was like, this isn't what I thought, and I don't think I want to do this anymore. But then I had to think, well, what are, we, what are you going to do? Right. What else is there? <laughs> what, else, what else are you going to do? You're not you know, capable of, of having the kind of job that could make you, you know, the kind of money that you think you're going to make. So, and I'm not a quitter. Yeah. You know, I really had to see this through um, to its fruition, and I'm glad that I did. So I th- when we were at lunch, you kind of alluded to um, uh, kind of like contractual stuff as mm-hmm. uh, uh, you said a certain amount of time you can get your master's back or something like that. Could you explain that? So <clears throat> I have to be very careful about how I politically go through this. Okay. So <laughs> when you make records, 
and you're signed to a record label, the record label not only owns you, but they own everything that you do for a period of time. So every song that I wrote, every every note that I sent that I sung, every part that I played is theirs for 35 years. Mm. Wow. Okay. Is it still that way now? I can't imagine that it's not. It's actually that way more now because streaming is based on the master recording itself. Mm. Okay. Okay. So 35 years from the time when you start is when you can start to even think about owning the music that you've created. And that's as the person that actually creates it. Now, if you're an artist that doesn't write your own music Mm -hmm. and you are beholden to other people, you have to then petition with those people to try to get that back. Mm. Because that's the thing that's valuable. That master recording is the most valuable piece of everything that you do. The problem is when you sign that first contract, at least then, it was hard to know what that was and there's nobody that's going to tell you what it is. You know, it's kind of like the difference between playing college ball and having all these people as advisors. And the first day you sign your pro contract, no one's making you go to class anymore. Mm-hmm. No one's now. You are definitely on your own. If you need to get to practice, you got to get to practice. For sure. You know, it's a very different. And this is this is what pro means that you're basically on your own. You have lawyers, you have all these things, but they're not going to tell you. Look, you probably shouldn't do this because again, you're you're weighing it against the fact that if I don't do this, I'm not going to get signed. If I'm not signed, I'm going to have 100% of nothing. Mm-hmm. So you kind of are forced into this position that if you want this career, this is the way everyone, I don't mm-hmm. care who you are, Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Stevie Wonder, this is what they all did, yeah. period. Outside, outside looking in, and I was having a conversation with my friend about this, because I don't, I don't know a whole lot about the music industry, but from an entrepreneur's perspective, if I take a kid named Brian and he has a he has a talent and I put some money behind Brian, well, I'm taking all the risk. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And if you flop, then I don't get my money back, I'm out. Right. But if you blow up, then obviously it's more in my favor. Like, you know, like people talk about Diddy and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm kind of only because I don't know and part of my ignorance, I'm kind of on his side. Like, yo, I'll put the money up. Right. Mm-hmm. If it work, if it doesn't work, I take the hit. Nobody's going to give me my money back. Right. But if it does work, they say, well, you lock this person into this contract and now you're benefiting greatly. Mm-hmm. But that only works if the person's longevity. So that, that's that's where I'm at. Like in my head, I know it. They, they call it like predatory, mm-hmm. but I'm taking a chance as an investor. That's true. It's not the, the taking chance part. The part in an entrepreneurial sense is. How much money do you need to make on top of what you put mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. before you're satisfied with the investment that you made? Yeah. Before you can then share that with the person who ultimately is out there doing the work. Mm-hmm. Is it five years? Is it 10? Surely not 35. <laughs> Surely not 35. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we're saying. Right, right. Nobody, I don't think anybody's saying, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't benefit from this mm-hmm. the, the 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 problem that most of us have is how much is enough because how long of a period of time are these songs even going to be viable mm-hmm. 
when they're not viable anymore in 35 years? Yeah. Because you've wrung, it's, uh, it's almost uh, likened to, you know, you're washing dishes, but now you have this rag that you have to wring out to get it dry again. Mm. But you're still wringing it, and it's like, <coughs> <coughs> I'm trapped. Right. No, you're not. <laughs> and then after that, yeah. oh, you have it back. Okay, here you go. There you go. Wow. So is this why the emergence of independent artists became a thing? Well, the internet okay. made that possible. Um, but I think we could count on, our, on one hand how many of them actually were the same kind of successful as they would have been mm. on a label. Mm-hmm. The label just has the resources and the capital to make that happen. You know, as an entrepreneur, when you try something, you don't you you can't do it with just enough money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't, or you can't do it with this much. And then when I get some more, I'll put some more into it. You need a pool of cash for sure because you're going to take losses. You're going to do something, and you have to have that pool of cash to make sure that you can you can. You know, deal with it in the in the lean times to get to the fat times. You yeah. Know? So coming up, did you? I will, I will always wonder, did it affect the music though? Like, because you're going <laughs> into the studio with a different, like a, a different mood. Like, yo, they're just trying to ring me out. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you feel me? Like, so, so how, how do you muster up to go and still perform? So for me, creating music was never about money. Hmm. They are two separate things. The way I create and what I create, I do that because I love to do it. Mm. The part where you're being compensated for it is, a, is an argument that you can't even have because you're contractually bound. So all you really can do is say, okay, going back in the studio means that I have no choice. I can't help but write music. Mm-hmm. Mm. I can't shut that off. So... I still have to feed that beast because I got a seven record deal. Mm-hmm. So I have to meet my obligations. All I can really do is say, if I'm successful enough, I can try to renegotiate parts of this, not the master part, but the other parts to make it more beneficial to me in the short run so that I can get to that 35 year point. Mm. Mm. Because if I only do those first two records and I get mad and say, bump this in 35 years, none of it's going to matter. Mm-hmm. So I just have to keep working. Because, and don't get me wrong, once you, the label makes you huge, at least at that time, I can then go out and get 150 grand a night. For sure. And they weren't participating. There were no 360 deals back then. Mm-hmm. That's what they do now. Right. Can you explain <laughs> so the performance money deal? was yours. So a 360 deal is basically whatever the label does for you, they're going to do it for you. And they participate in everything, merchandising, touring, um, any aspect of your career. If you get a, a, a movie deal, they're going to go on that because they are out there promoting you in every way they can. The more revenue they generate, the more they participate. In our day, they only dealt with the record side. Mm. So they didn't have a piece of those other things. They didn't have a piece of, if I do a deal with Sears, they don't have a piece of that. Mm. If I do my touring, they don't get a piece of that. But 360 mm. means they're out there all day long promoting you, making money, and they're going to take a piece of that, a lot of it. Gotcha. I think that's fair in terms of <laughs> like if, okay, so again, I'm, I'm entrepreneur. If I invest in you and on the record side, what you create here, right. if, um, if I blow you up, it gives you an opportunity to go make your own money, that's right. which I think would be cool. So when did they, 
You didn't, hold on, you were signed to a label, weren't you? Long, long, long time ago. How'd that go? We never made it off of the shelf. No. <laughs> and there's a lot of that, you know. There's, there's, a, lot, there's a lot of that that goes on. I, there's a, a bunch of records I did on other people that never saw the light of day. Mm. Um, and I wonder sometimes where those people are and what they're doing. Mm. But Did you sign some people? Did you have your, your own label? The only person I ever signed was Robin Thicke. You really? signed Robin Thicke? I did. What? I His did. very first deal? First deal. Wait a minute. Wow. So how did this happen? Robin, I met through some other people that I knew when he was in high school. Mm. And they said, you got to see this kid. He's Brian McWhite. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, That's crazy because like, I see it now. Uh, yeah, as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, yeah. But I knew his dad, and I was cool with his dad, and you know, I met him. We started hanging out. He played basketball, mm-hmm. so we had that in common. And he, I took him in the studio, myself and David Foster, and we made this first record. Mm-hmm. At that time, Robin, either he, I can't really remember what the why it didn't work out, but he wasn't either ready or he, you know, whatever it was that was going on, and that it didn't work out. And then he signed the other deal, and then, you know, all the other things happened. But, yeah, I signed him to his first deal. How long did you sign him for? I think it was about three years or so. Three years. In those three years, it wasn't, it wasn't working out. It just didn't work for whatever reason. I, I, I don't want to say what it was because I don't really remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just didn't. Dang. That would have been cool. Yes and no. Why, I mean, why, I, why not keep going with signing people? Was it that one bad experience? You're like, ah, oh, the same. It wasn't necessarily the bad experience. I just didn't really have the time. Yeah, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Right after that, uh, anytime comes out, does three million, and then back at one comes out, does four million. I'm way too busy to mm. be over there trying to do that. Um, so it didn't really. I I felt better. Just listen, my favorite artist in the world to work with is me. Mm. (laughs) and honestly when that started to happen there became like this overwhelming number of artists who began to sign other artists and they're all creating these labels and I think that was a major shift in the industry because they were talent Mm -hmm. more than they were executives yeah it's kind of like you know if you're a football coach and you're the GM it it usually doesn't work yeah Yeah. for sure for sure for sure Yeah, like, yo, if you want to get me for 35 years, I'm going to get somebody else for 35. <laughs> See, I, wouldn't, I don't think I would have done that, but mm. all those deals weren't actual label deals. They were right. imprint deals. You were still going through the label. Gotcha. And the label would give you a better rate, but they were still taking their 35 years. Mm. That's just by law. I mean, yeah. the law says that when you assign these copyrights, they have them for 35 years. Mm. So now in your case, you, you mentioned some of the music like fizzling out. Is this even going to still be relevant? and marketable in 35 years. You made timeless music, hands down. Did you know at the time that you were creating, that you were making time? Like, was this intentional? Like, I'm going to get my money after 35 <laughs> years. No, because you have to also remember that there wasn't streaming yet. The only reason why it's become viable is because the masters are what are most important now. Mm-hmm. Um, until streaming was a thing, you would have gotten them back, but they would have been nowhere near as valuable as they are now. Mm. Mm. Um, and it's kind of detrimental what the labels did. When streaming came, it was very different than a ter- terrestrial radio play. See, when my song is played on the radio, all that revenue is mine. When a stream happens, only 25% of that revenue is mine. 
Got you. And it's because they made streaming uh, a licensing deal and not an actual song deal. Okay. 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 Well, now how it makes it detrimental for them. Now everybody wants their masters. Mm-hmm. They can't get them. <laughs> right, right. But they want them. And Taylor Swift is showing us that, they, you know, you don't have to take it sitting down. So can you tell me what's going on with Taylor Swift? Okay, so I don't know the nuts and bolts of it, and I've gotten in trouble saying things before (laughs) that I didn't know the whole deal, but I know she's not happy about the situation, and she's doing everything she can to get her fans to rally behind her to change the paradigm of the way music uh, labels do business. Mm -hmm. That's that's the best way I can say it. Mm -hmm. So throughout your career, um, do do you love every aspect of the career? Do you have, like, love, no. hate with... No, I don't. What are some of the worst... Like, what are some of the, the, the bad tastes that you have in well, your career? Well, I think the one that's the, the worst is the business side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The business side of things really make the artist the lowest end of the totem pole. Um, is that the case? That's the case. That is absolutely the case. Yeah. A lot of artists don't know that because they're doing so well, but they have no idea how well they could be doing if things mm. were a little different and we're not in a union so when, again I'll bring up Taylor Swift because she's doing this she's the first artist of her stature to take on this responsibility really and what I hope happens that because she's doing a lot of other people say other people of her stature will say well wait it's what they may not mm-hmm. even know Mm. But and then it might gotta, change everything for everybody. That's got to mm. affect what she's able to do in terms of new music as an artist. Like, there has to be some animosity between her and her label. I mean, there may be. But the only person that she needs to be concerned with are her fans. Mm. This is the first artist that we've ever seen who is beseeching her own fans to say, look, you love me, right? Why would you then go over there and take all of your allegiance and put it with these people who are doing me wrong? Mm. How about you? Just give all that love to me, baby. Yeah, for sure. Give it all to me. Wow. Nobody's ever said that. The same Till now. Until the same now. ask as Dave, Dave Chappelle. See, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Dave's doing the same thing. Yeah. Makes sense. You know? I mean, but think about it. That's a tough position to be in because you have to take the stand and you don't know when you're the first, you're the pioneer of this, you don't know what's going to happen. Well, that's this why it had to be her. you. Mm-hmm. That's why it had to, had be, to be her. her. Yeah. Or, and I'm not calling anybody out, but I'm not, I'm not even going to say it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I almost messed up. <laughs> Again. As you're navigating through your career, um, and, and now you're, transi- you're making some transitions in your life mm-hmm. now, other than music, what's going on with Brian McKnight today? All I really want to do is... Love that woman right there. So sweet. And spend every second of the rest of my life just making her happy, which will make us happy. Okay. Um, And part of that is being in a financial position to not have to be on the road, Mm -hmm. to not have to do the grind of that Mm -hmm. so much just to have that life. And that's where owning, getting that ownership back of these things make so much sense as we're coming up on that 35th year. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're close. Yeah. Oh, we're close. Yeah. We're very, very close. You're like so. the epitome of fairy tale, right? I think I said when we had lunch, uh, do you say this all the time, fairy tale? <laughs> <laughs> I think I said when we had lunch, like that era of 90s R&B superstars, like 
especially being in Atlanta, we see them all the time in mm. these love music, baby making music, will you marry me music. And you see the artist in real life and you're like, huh, you didn't believe any of that stuff you were writing about or singing <laughs> right, about, right. did you? But you did the way you love your wife just speaks for who you were at that time as an artist. Like this is actually in well, you. Well, I, I will say this. I didn't feel that way about it either until I met her. Understood. Mm. So I can't fault them for the way that they are. Mm -hmm. They haven't met a Leilani yet. Mm. When they meet one, if they still do that, then you realize that they didn't meet a Leilani yet. So I wrote what I thought was what people wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. um, I never felt that way. I didn't think it existed. I'd never seen it exist. Wow. I didn't think that, um, that's why if you really listen to what I wrote, I never wrote about forever till Leilani. I never wrote about being in love till Leilani. Really? I wrote about, you know, my DVD player and it kinda can fit into this relationship thing. You know, you may not know that by listening to the lyric, but that's where it came from. Anytime was not about a lost love, it was about, between album one and album two, there was a drop-off in the amount of records I sold. So I can't remember why we fell apart from something that was so meant to be. Wow, it's and here deep. I was basing it's my whole love life <laughs> off of the <laughs> You know, wow. it started off that way. It was like, okay, this is too deep. Let me still have your picture in the frame. You know, let mm. me, you know, being good enough to, to create the scene, and we get that for movies, mm -hmm. to create a scene of something that's abstract that people can still make a part of their everyday life without it being based on anything. Mm -hmm. you so write, you write all your own songs? Yes. Leilani, while you're sitting there, if you could just write down what the prayer was <laughs> and pass that. It's so important that black voices are represented in black media for so many different reasons. And the next generation of black uh, voices and influencers from black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collections, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. In every episode, it's a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Smyrta to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black Stories, Black Truths. I listen and I'm enjoying these conversations that are for us, by us. Black representation, again, it hasn't always been uh, shared from our perspective. And black perspectives haven't been censored in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR. Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen to the Black Stories, Black Truths on NPR, wherever you get podcasts. 
All right, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you can keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headache, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. It just makes sense. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite? I know you see it. Listen to me. If you have everything scattered in business, you cannot grow. And everything is more expensive when you have more and more processes layered on top of each other, more and more softwares. You got to get out of that. And it, it will improve efficiency and cut costs. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com slash social proof. That's NetSuite.com slash social proof. NetSuite.com slash social proof. Hey, y'all, I ain't going to lie, man. They sent me this Eufy lock. Think about being on the couch. Someone rings the doorbell. Your child left their key at school. And they need you to get off the couch to open the door. Well, you don't have to do it anymore with this Eufy lock. You can open, unlock, see who's at the door all on your phone. It's super easy to install. You can set up with just a Phillips screwdriver, no drilling required. It's keyless entry. So it's no more fumbling for your keys when your hands are full coming from the grocery store. 0.3 second fingerprint recognition. Listen, you put your fingerprint on there. You don't have, even if you got you got your bags, you put one finger out there, boop, you get to unlock your door that way. No battery anxiety. You don't have to worry about the battery dying. Quick charging, it's incredible. Also, passcode unlocking and remote control with a 2K clear sight camera so you can see who's at the front door. You're in control anywhere from the app. Enhanced night vision. It's absolutely incredible. No monthly fee either. So unlike other brands that charge a monthly fee, you have you have uh, recordings locally, and you don't have to pay for the storage. Customer support is on 10. Listen, Eufy is on standby for you 24-7, so you can enjoy a worry-free experience with an 18-month warranty, all backed by our professional customer service team. Listen, you can contact them anytime, telephone, email, or live chat. Okay, listen, you need this Eufy lock. You need to look it up. All you have to do is go to the official website, eufy.com. I just ordered mine, okay? I love this product. It is incredible. It's a game changer. It makes life so much easier, right? So if you have a video doorbell already or any smart lock, it's, 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 it's time to replace it. It's time to replace it. So listen, search Eufy, E-U-F-Y, video lock. Search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Or visit eufyofficial.com forward slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. 
okay? You can get a complete control of your front door, your life, back door, incredible, okay? So search Eufy, E-U-F-Y, Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com forward slash Video Lock. To me on your way out, <laughs> I would definitely. What was the prayer? <laughs> uh, no. So you write all your own songs. Yeah. Most artists don't do that, do they? I don't know. I I, I wouldn't know the liner notes to know what they do. I just know. And again, I I live in this little Brian world where I do what I do, mm-hmm. and occasionally throughout my career, I've allowed people to come in there if I'm producing them to see what I do, and I realized that I'm very different than a lot of other people. And I don't have a lot of patience. Mm. And it affected the way I worked with other people. And I had to stop doing it because I didn't really know how to be... I've watched other producers work, and they're Mm. very good at giving praise and encouraging and do but i i work very fast because mm-hmm. i hate being in the studio <laughs> really well if you're there too long your judgment can be impaired your ears get tired start um, changing stuff start changing so you'll yeah. you'll do a vocal with someone and you know as a producer that i've i have gotten the absolute best out of this person there's nothing more they're going to be able to do mm-hmm. You finally have it. They take it home that night, and they come back and say, well, I want to fix X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I can't, I, I can't work like this anymore. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, so I just had to, and I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. It's just a difference in you know, the way we do yeah. things. So I just retreated back. because like, I'm just going to focus on Brian McKnight, the artist, right. and, and call it a day. And you've colla- you, I'm sorry. Do you plan on creating more albums? You know, that's interesting. I said this last one would be, would be my last, number 20. And I'm not wavering from that. I will always create music. Okay. Uh, whether I release it or not, mm-hmm. right. we'll see. You've collaborated with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. What were some of your most memorable collaborations? I want to hear these stories from, like, this, <laughs> this, this golden era of music, right? Wow. Uh, Boys to Men is the first one that comes to mind. I produced their Christmas album. Mm. And I met those guys when I was mixing my first album in New York. They were there doing a press junket on their first album. And I was, we were staying in the same hotel. And I was in the lobby just playing the piano. And I met these guys. And we all sat there and sang around this piano. And then two years later, they called me after my first record <sighs> to produce their Christmas album. That was and a moment, though. Hold on. Don't speed past in that. The You're lobby. in the lobby. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, then they walk up. Yeah. And yeah. then these people have Brian McKnight and Boys to Men just randomly in a hotel Concert. lobby. In 1993. Oh, wow. my goodness. Well, that was actually 91. Um, they called me in 93 to do the Christmas album, and they're on tour, a world tour. I mean, this is one of the biggest groups in the world at the yeah. time. So I'm chasing them around the world. I'm in London while they're doing a concert, and that's where I wrote uh, Let It Snow, walking down the street in June wow. in London. You, you wrote, wrote Let, Let It Snow? Snow? Yeah, I wrote, <laughs> yeah, I wrote Let It Snow. <laughs> Golly. The one from the Boys to Men album. Yeah, Not Let yeah, It Snow, yeah, Let yeah, It Snow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that absolutely. One. Yeah, I, wrote that. I wrote that. Wow. That's an all-time favorite Christmas song. Thank you. All-time. All-time. Yo, while you're, okay, while you're writing, do you know this is a classic? Like, So let me give you some context. When I do an interview... I can feel when this is one that hits. Mm-hmm. Like, I know, I just know my audience, I know they're going to love it. When you're writing, do you, like, see, they're going to be singing this for 30, 40, 50 years. 
No. Because I'm smart enough to know that it doesn't matter how good the song is. If it doesn't get to this person, who has to get it to that person, who has to get ultimately get it to this person. Mm. And I can't say that. <laughs> I can't say that. <laughs> if, that. if any of that stuff breaks down, it really doesn't matter how good it is. So to try to have some forethought that something's going to be a hit, I know it's good. Mm-hmm. In some cases, I know it's great. Mm-hmm. But whether or not people will be singing it for 30 years, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Goodness gracious. Nobody knows. Have you ever, like, do you have a, a, a great song that you know is going to hit that never came out? Sure, I have lots of those that never came out. Then there's a bunch of songs that are album cuts on albums that I thought would be singles mm-hmm. that, that didn't. There's something strange that happens with the consumer that if it's not a single, they're not going to go f- usually find mm-hmm. a deep cut on an album. Mm-hmm. They're really only going to focus on the singles. And I've, I've, I've never been that way. I listen to an entire record. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm I an think, album guy. Yeah. I like the song on the album that but didn't make yeah. the radio. But how many albums do you have where you don't go by any of them, don't fast forward past any song on the album? I only have one. Very few. What's your Which one? Which one is that? It's uh, Steely Dan's Gaucho. Really? Yeah. I'll listen to every single song. Cooley High Harmony was one for me. That's a good, that's a good album. Really good. Yeah. But I will skip past a couple of those. Right. Those are my boys. <laughs> those are my boys. But I will. Even Stevie. And I love Stevie. There's a couple of them. Let me get to that next song. Mariah right. Carey is the one for me. I can listen to everything she does straight through. Right. Old Mariah Carey. Everything oh she does straight through. <laughs> <laughs> like, you saw the transition in R&B, right? Did, did you ever, like, not like it? Going from, like, love and these, these moments to turn around and, you know what I mean? Like, did you? Well, here's the thing, and I've said this in a number of interviews. The problem with R&B is that we keep calling everything that somebody black does R&B. Mm. My era, we didn't do R&B. R&B to me is the Four Tops and the Temptations and James mm. Brown. And I don't think any of us did anything like that. But they James Brown's R&B? Well, yeah. It seemed like pop. Pop, yeah. What song are y'all talking about? Get up, man. get on up. Yeah. That's not, like that's not, you world. think that's pop music? I think it's like, I don't know why. I think it's I'm like not, urban pop. I, yeah, I, I don't thing? know what I would call it. <laughs> See, you, got, you guys grew up in some era where you, there were all these genres. That's true. Everything I, has I, to be called something. Yeah. Uh, soul music of the 60s was where R&B came from. And that's what James Brown is. James that's Brown what Aretha was definitely Franklin soul, is. soul music. That's uh, Marvin Gaye. That's yeah. R&B. Teddy Pendergrass to a certain extent. You know, everything that came out of Philadelphia at that time hmm. is R&B. To me. So what's your category? Uh, I don't know if I would call it anything, but I'm not going to call it R&B. Mm. Just really? Just because somebody black did it. Mm. You do a great disservice to that fantastic music by calling the next music that somebody does the same thing. You really have to figure out. um, When Nirvana came out, they made it grunge. They didn't say this is classic rock. Mm. Mm. They made it something else so that they wouldn't have to, so that you were paying homage to the ones that came before and you're giving these guys their own lane. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that with this music. So when these kids start doing their thing today or maybe 10 years ago, what you're talking about, they want to compare it to what we did. And I don't compare it to what we did. They have their own thing. It's very different. So it's not that I'm liking it or disliking it. I'm just not comparing it to us. Do they have an audience? Absolutely. Are they successful? Absolutely. Then I applaud you for that. Mm. I'm not going to say, well, I hate that because it's not what we did. Mm. Right. Versus, versus battle, who will be your perfect match? Oh, I don't know. 
<laughs> you got an idea. You got somebody like. I think that the versus battle is a celebration of music. Yeah, when I saw sure. Teddy and um, and Babyface do it, I I don't think that it. I think people want to make it that you know you're going back and forth. Mm-hmm. You know, my contemporaries Joe and uh, Maxwell and D'Angelo. These guys are Ooh. incredible, Ooh. incredible musicians and and singers and songwriters. Yeah. And to be able to celebrate their music from another artist standpoint. Mm. What we don't know as artists is how many other artists are actually listening to the things that we do. Mm. And do they know that we're listening to what they do? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's the conversation that you very rarely hear. Um, as opposed to when Teddy Riley's up there and he has people dancing behind him. And <laughs> I, mean, that's, that's cool. that's, I mean, that's cool, but right. you know, it'd be great to have that conversation. Just to know, I, I, don't, I don't know how many other artists out there listen to what I've done, so how what- they feel about it. What artist, what's on your playlist right now? Oh, I listen to the same four records. Drive my wife crazy. <laughs> really? <laughs> that I've been listening to Does my whole really, life. Just listen to the same songs over and over again? Yeah, I really do. What are those? So, uh, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of, key of Life. Mm-hmm. Um, Donald Fagan's solo record, which is The Nightfly. Um, there's, you know, various Steely Dan records I listen to. Um, Commission, The Winans, um... Kenny Loggins, Mike McDonald, James Ingram. You listen okay. to your own music? I, you know what I listen to? I listen to the original demos. Mm-hmm. I don't listen to the mixed album versions of the songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because something gets lost from the magic of when we recorded that night. Gotcha. That the mixes are made for radio. Mm-hmm. Those monitor mixes I do when I first finish the song, that has all of the, the grit and the the things that you have to filter out for radio. Mm. Do me a favor real quick. Imagine you were kind of in like this grandpop chair and you had like kids around and you were going to tell them stories from this golden era. I would love to just sit here and listen to some stories about how you ran into like Boys to Men and you and Maxwell had this moment and you know, I wish there were a bunch of those. You got some stories. I, I really don't. And I mean, Vince will tell you my stories are about the athletes and my friends that I hung out with. I didn't really, I didn't do the industry thing. Mm. I never did. And that's, I wish I'd done it better. I think I'd be much bigger and much more revered if I knew how to do the Hollywood thing. Mm. You know, mm. I've watched people walk into a room and they immediately turn it on. Hey, man. Yeah. All right. Cool. You're the man. I love you. You love me. And it's awesome. I don't, I don't, I don't have that, right. that BS part. So I, I, you, I just, I don't. So you're an introvert. I don't. It's not really, I'm an introvert. I like to, I don't want to just jump in the pool. I'm, let me get my foot a little bit. Right, let me right. see what, let me get the yeah. lay of the land, you know. Yeah, and I, sure. I always assume that nobody knows who I am. Mm. I really? always assume that, that <laughs> really? they're not paying attention. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Really? I'll tell you why. The minute you think people know who you are, you're going to run into somebody that says, wait, wait, who are you? I'd much rather be yeah. surprised that you know who I am mm-hmm. than assume you know and then you don't know. And now I'm like, mm-hmm. right, right, <laughs> you right. know, that's just who I am. I, I kind of factor Brian McKnight out of the equation. I'm just, I'm just B. I'm Brian. Yeah. Um, my wife gets very mad at me because, you know, I, I, it, I think somebody doesn't know. And then they're like, see, they knew. And they didn't, you know. You know what? The day that we met you for lunch, 
we went to Shan's, uh, his palate has some maturing to do, but we went to his favorite restaurant on planet Earth. Oh my God. The Cheesecake Well, Let me ask you a question, Brian. And do you eat Church's Chicken? Do you eat Church's Chicken? No, I don't eat Church's Chicken. Me neither. That means, there's two of us <laughs> on this show right now that doesn't eat Church's Chicken. And she's talking about me about Cheesecake Factory. You Proceed. like Church's Chicken? Leilani's like, I like Church's Chicken. Yeah. I don't, for the record, I don't eat Church's Chicken. I eat Church's Chicken's biscuits. And okra. Okay. However, when I found out we were meeting you at lunch at the Cheesecake Factory, I'm like, this is what we're doing today? That was Vince's Brian idea, McKnight at the Cheesecake Factory? Well, I would say that, that Vince loves Cheesecake Factory. Come on, Vince. We have to That's do better. That's why he gets there and everybody we, there knows we, him. We have to do better. But, but so. Vince doesn't look at Brian as Brian McKnight. It's like, my boy B, let's go eat. But we definitely yeah. looked at him as Brian McKnight, yeah. right? And 100%. I definitely would, would have appreciated a different... Re- First of all, I'm just tired of the Cheesecake Factory. Just <laughs> We're not doing it anymore. Yeah, that's where our meetings are all but the time. I just I found that... Um, you're very approachable mm-hmm. in that sense. Like you came, you showed up and yeah. you had your lovely family with you and we had a good time. Like we ate mm-hmm. a lot of food and had a good time. But I will say this, if Vince hadn't been my friend that asked me to do that, it wouldn't have happened. You wouldn't yeah. have been. So I don't, I'm not sure if we are necessarily approachable and it's not that we're not approachable. It's just, you just don't know who people are. Mm. You don't know what people's, what their motives are. Okay. We live in a world now where... And maybe we shouldn't watch all these crime shows, but I'm a dick <laughs> right, 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 right. You, you just so we we keep our thing really, really, really small. Mm-hmm. So I've known Vince since I was 18. I, our parents went to college together, mm-hmm. so he's somebody that I, I trust a little bit. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when he says it, then I, I I came. So I understand why people would think that we're not approachable because. I don't walk into a room letting everybody know that I'm there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're just, if we're someplace in public, we're, we're there to do what we're there yeah. to do. We didn't come in to say, hey, you know I'm here, right? Right. right. <laughs> you know right. I'm here, right? <laughs> right? But you walk in a restaurant, then you, start, you hear your music on the radio, you're like, okay, I'm flattered, but you don't have to do that. Yeah, for sure, for sure. But ka-ching, because mm-hmm. I'm getting a royalty. Anyway. <laughs> so you're not necessarily... You, you're just protecting yourself and your family. My family, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you have to because, again, you don't know what people's motives and intentions right. are. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever, because um, I, I read this quote that people spend their whole lives looking to get recognized in entertainment. Like, I want to be this star. And then you become a star and you wear real dark glasses and you try to not be noticed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you ever experience that? No. Because, again, I'm also assuming that nobody knows anyway. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's just a little game. Even on my concerts that I know are sold out, mm. I play this game with myself that says nobody's going to show up. So with that thought, would mm. you run into Target if you needed something? We're in Target all the time. Really? All the time. Brian, you seem so cool. You just seem like you'd just be out at Target. You just randomly see my man. You know what I mean? Like looking at what the I prices. Find, like, looking uh, at the deodorant. Like, oh, this like, is new. Uh, you seem real regular. Yeah. We need toilet paper. Right. We need paper towels. <laughs> we need deodorant and right. shampoo and well, my wife's not gonna get shampoo there, but I will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Body wash, you know. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you gonna do? I mean, you can't just get everything, you know, delivered to the house. I mean, I guess you could, but you couldn't. Now. We like to get out. We like to. We like Target. We don't like Walmart so much, but we got in trouble for putting that on Instagram too. <laughs> well, not, this not will because be of the stuff. YouTube. Not because of the stuff in there. Just right. you know, it's, it's a different environment. It's a different environment. A different and environment. they know it's a different environment. They know sure. it's different. Okay. Sure. Yeah. They know. Do, do you ever get frustrated though? I mean, it's gonna be well. You know what? Nobody like really stopped and said, "Brian, you're eating." 
can we take a picture? You know, while we was at Cheesecake Factory right. that mm-hmm. day. Mm-hmm. But do you no, not to laughter. You know, sometimes you get folks that are respectful, mm-hmm. and other times you you don't. Well, do you ever have to assert yourself and say no? Now is not the time. Yeah. 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 Do you feel bad about but it? I, I don't feel bad necessarily. I try to be as magnanimous as I can be. Listen, I'm, I'm with my family. Real quick, because Donnie doesn't know what magnanimous means. <laughs> Are you going to explain that for her real quick? For I, try to be, I try to be as accommodating as I can while saying no. Okay. Gotcha. You know, I'm not like, no, get out of here. Get out of my face. I've right. seen people do that. Yeah, I've yeah. seen it Mostly too. athletes, because they don't necessarily depend on the public for their check. And right. I'm like, how did you do that, man? Bump them. I'm like, okay. But uh, I just try to be as nice as I can say, look, uh, and try to put them in my shoes. I'm with my family. We're trying to eat. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe if you want to wait till after, then I'll be more than happy yeah. to, mm-hmm. to do whatever. Or, you know, there's just, there's just way too many people out here. And, you know, but when you have a bodyguard or something, then they can do it. And you come like, I'm sorry. And then you can, <laughs> right, right, right. You can keep it moving. First time you were starstruck. Like, who was you? Like, you go okay. to the studio. I can't believe this. So there's only been one time and it wasn't in the studio. I was in the Bahamas, and we were playing golf, and I'm making the turn, and I look over in the car, and I see this old man. I look a little closer, and it's Sean Connery. Wow. Hmm. So now I'm like, you need to go up and say something to this dude because you love him. Oh, you're having a conversation (laughs) with yourself. Yes, you love him. You need to go over there and talk to him. And then I'm like, no, you can't, because he's just here playing golf. If it was you, you wouldn't want somebody coming up to you. But then I'm like, but he's Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. And so you're should... understanding the conversation mm-hmm. people are having when they see you. Yes. <laughs> so I didn't go up to him. I didn't really? speak to him. I didn't. Really? I didn't. So did didn't. you ever later have an opportunity to meet him? Nope. And now he's dead. And now he's gone. Oh. And I said that in my Instagram post, that I, I had that opportunity and I didn't. But I think... I hope that he appreciated not being bothered at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, not necessarily by me, just by anyone, that he could have that moment to just be normal and regular mm-hmm. and do his thing. And I think if a lot of people would take that, and I get that you're seeing a person, you may not ever see him again, mm-hmm. and it's tough to not be that, it should be okay to just be able to say, man, I saw it was really cool. I saw so and so. But nobody would ever believe it. Well, it was like that. No. <laughs> it was fine before we got cameras on our phones. Right, right, right. Oh, for right. sure. For so sure. then it became a free-for-all. No, yeah. you can't do it. You know, we'll stand somewhere, and you'll see somebody over there like this. Mm-hmm. They're looking at their phone, but they're facing this way, but they're like... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> which is fine. But then don't come up and say, hey, can I have your picture? I'm like, I saw you. You have a whole video. Yeah, I, I saw you. Right, right. <laughs> no, I didn't. Show me your phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so as, as in this like long-standing career in music have you like solely been focused on music or like did you jump out and do other ventures whether jump into different industries did tv did radio um in terms of what do you mean so by i had a tv, TV show okay. a nighttime talk show uh, really that was syndicated I had uh, two radio shows, one um, morning show in L.A. and then another nighttime sort of, uh, 
what's that thing called? It's my genre too. I can't even think of what it's called. Uh, you know, the nighttime love song. Slow, slow jam. I, slow, slow, jams. slow jams, but it's called something. I can't think was of what it, it was. Like the Midnight Storm? Yeah. Like the Quiet Storm. Quiet Storm. Okay. So that was syndicated across the country as well. Um, so I've done a couple of different things. I did Broadway, but that's kind of the same. I've mm-hmm. been in a few movies as an actor as well. But music has always been my focus. But in terms of you didn't like get into like, other business ventures or tech or uh, I invested in a couple of things um, on the fitness side that's how I met my wife mm-hmm. um, and then I I have an app of my own that I invested in that I'm still trying to figure out mm-hmm. how yeah. to uh, it launched and now I have to relaunch it again but are you still investing in stuff like are you like for a good idea would you invest in it it really depends it really depends um, in a small way, probably, as the main chief person, probably not. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I, I can really see it. You're not necessarily, like, money-driven. It's like you get to a point where you're comfortable in life as long as you can, like, do what you want to do with your wife. And- yeah. You know, I mean, we're all money-driven on some level. Is it, Am I crazy money-driven? Like, you know, my wife always says it, it's it, in, in one way or another, it's going to come anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, why should we worry about it? Why should it be the sole focus of our lives? Our sole focus is loving one another and, and all the good things that come around that being a good person mm-hmm. should bring the things um, that you want in your life. And gotcha. uh, that's how we, that's our philosophy is how we live our lives. We pass down to Jack and Julia as well. So I noticed that you guys are documenting a lot of your time together. Uh, what is, what is that about? Are we doing a YouTube show? Oh, show or? coming? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we realize that there are a lot of people out there that are interested in our love story and figuring out a way to let them into that without it being completely intrusive mm-hmm. is kind of what we're trying to figure out. Gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha. Because okay. my wife is, I know I say this a lot, and I, it may sound like I'm pushing her, but she really is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Wow. Mm. Um, how she thinks, what she does, um, her takes on things, what she's done in her life. Um, her accolades are as long as my arm. She is way more accomplished than me, way smarter than me. She's obviously better looking than me. <laughs> I would agree there. Um, I would agree there. I have no idea how I pulled this off, but I went to this little witch in Eloquipa, Pennsylvania, and I, I got this little this stuff <laughs> to, uh, to sprinkle in her food, and it's still working. So. Yeah. And, and completely humble about all of your accolades and accomplishments. Like, I still remember back to the, at that same lunch, she's talking about, yeah, you know, we were at this fitness convention and doing this, that, and the other. And I remember, like, the next day I had to perform surgery, and here I am getting scrubbed up. Right. It's a brain wide open on the table. I'm right. like, wait a minute. Right. <laughs> Are you a brain surgeon? Yeah. <laughs> Just skate right over that right, part. Right, right. So how do you, with, with your level of success as a celebrity and then your wife's level of success as her own, uh, she's a surgeon, yeah. right? Brain surgeon. And I believe like pediatric brain surgeon. Yeah. Pediatric. With her own level of success in her industry, how does this work? How do you, how do you merge the time? The number one thing that's most important in our lives to me is her and to her is me. In the midst of all of this, concerts, tours, uh, songs, surgeries, ups and downs where that's concerned, research, the consulting that she does, everything, she still makes me the priority. Mm. There has never been a time in any of that that I thought that I wasn't on her mind. Wow. Um, and I like to believe that it's the same thing for me in my work, that 
every song that I've written since we met has been about her. So my work is her. Mm. Um, there really, there is no separation between, we don't have separate lives, even though she has a career and I have a career, our lives aren't separate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is probably the key to having a successful relationship. And on top of that, you have to be extraordinarily hot for her and she has to be extraordinarily hot for you. Mm. So if any of those things break down, and the most important ones are the ones I said last, it starts with that. Mm -hmm. And then we have the rest of this. Mm -hmm. You know, so what is love? You could, like, define it. Somebody asked me that question the other day. Yeah. And they said, uh, it was Joe on on the interview. It was on our last interview. How would you define love? And I think I started rambling off some stuff that didn't really sound to, that my wife wouldn't probably like. But how would you define love? Well, love itself is having an extraordinary affinity for something. That's not in love. Mm. You didn't ask me what in love is. You asked me what love is. Well, now what's in love? See, in love is there is nothing more important than what I feel for her. Not even the air that I breathe. Wow. You can't even teach that, though. How do you get to that? No, no, you can't teach that. You can't. When it happens to you, all of a sudden, whatever you were is no more. Like there's no how right? to be in, in yeah. love seminar. Well, let, me, no. let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There, is there a way you could have messed that up? Like in your head, you're talking to yourself like uh, almost self-sabotage, especially because you haven't Well, yeah. What, what could have happened was is if I didn't recognize what she was because I was so far into that world you were talking about. Okay of not believing in it. Mm -hmm. Um, The machismo of man that says, I need to conquer everything. I need to be this player that I've been taught to be by my predecessors, by Mm -hmm. my brothers, by my uncles, by all of those people. Surely there can't be one woman that can make me feel this way. My heart beat for the first time the day she walked down that aisle to me at that fitness convention. Mm. Wow. It never beat before. I was Spock. Now, if you are a Star Trek fan, Spock was analytical. There's no feeling. Feeling doesn't exist. It's illogical to feel. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine at 42, I see this goddess angel coming down the aisle to me, and now all of a sudden, this, what the? What is this? <laughs> right, right, right. What is this? So messing it up would have been to ignore that and try to be safe by not now having a heart and not recognize if I, if I lose her, I go the rest of my life wondering how my life could have been. Mm. And I guarantee you my life would be in the toilet right now if it wasn't for her. So the moment you see her walking down at this convention, and then you guys start dating, you exchange information, Mm. you start dating, was it an instant shift for you, or was there a period of transition that said, okay, I have to lay these old ways down and shift? Or did you just kind of know so much? I, I think I knew immediately I think it's tough to know because I was insecure. Mm -hmm. I know who she can get, and they're way better than me. You were insecure. Yeah, for sure. You've always been that way? No. If you don't feel, how can you be insecure? Having a woman like this, who's the only one like this, want to be with me, knowing that there are 
10 billionaires lined up who all look better than me, who all have more money than me, who all could do more for her than I could ever do as a declining R&B star. That's insecurity, Jack. That's, I mean, how do you, how do you put that into, you know, anything? Mm. So understanding that I, you know, retreated into myself a little bit because I didn't, want to give everything to her to have her then say you know what you're not exactly what I thought you were um, I listened to those records too and you know it's been 10 years since then mm-hmm. wow. so but the transition was you had to say to yourself look I'm just gonna if, if I don't do this this way and I lose her because I'm an idiot then this will never it can never be the dream that I have and yeah. so I have a question <laughs> you meet Leilani. Mm-hmm. Everybody at the time that you meet somebody, you got something going on, right? Mm-hmm. As casual or as serious as it could be. Did you have to immediately send text messages like, done, don't call me anymore, ever again, found the one? Well, the thing about this world that we R&B guys were in, there, there was nobody that thought that they were something. (laughs) You know, you you need to be very clear about what you were doing. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a very bad situation. Okay. Um, So there was really no call that needed to go out. It's just like, you're you're never going to hear from me again. That's it. Wow. That's it. And then, you know, you just never... Was there ever any... Because, like, I'm I'm trying to understand this, this... this level of in love that you're at because you're kind of stoic in relationships first and then now it's, it's this moment and it's like oh my gosh something's happening to me right. was there any time where it almost broke down in the courting process or dating and like ah I thought it was something but it's nothing no mm. wow no no and I think that happened because she knew who she was um, she was not going to settle for anything less than everything I've got. She made that very plain from minute number one. She was like, there, there were a couple times where, and this was before we became, uh, before I touched her. It was a year before I touched her. A year before intimacy? Before, a year before we held hands. What? Well... Part of that is because you lived in two different places. Well, we still saw each other. Yeah, but there's a, we there's saw a each other. Or... We talked. Uh, there were three separate cases where I, I tried to use reverse psychology. It was like, well, I'm, I'm, I think I'm just going to be done here because you ain't trying to get down with the program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> expecting her to be <laughs> expecting her to be like, oh no, here it is. You can have it. Now. She's like, okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Five minutes later, I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I didn't mean it. I'm I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. I was just, I was just being, whatever. And unbeknownst to me, we got to know each other in that year. We got to learn what being best friends was about. I told her, I told her things about my life that nobody knows before I ever touched her. Wow. Um. She became, you know, everything to me before I even did that. And then she gave it to me. And I was like, because, of course, I was like, it probably ain't that good. True. You trying to hold on to <laughs> right, this. Right, right. 
<laughs> but I love man. you so. Let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you something. Let me, let me, let me tell you something. I'm not trying to make Julia. <laughs> She'll throw up in her mouth. But man. <laughs> <laughs> they have their. For those of you who can't see, they, they also have their daughters sitting in the room. Yeah, wow. it was. It was. Look, as men, we all have an idea yeah. of what that dream woman looks like, mm-hmm. what she smells like, mm-hmm. what she, how she walks, how she talks. Um, and that day, I had to pinch myself because it was exactly the dream that I had. So you wow. began to live out these love songs that you wrote that you didn't believe That's actually right. existed. Mm-hmm. That's right. And then wrote better ones after we met. Ah, oh, this is so That's good. so romantic. He needs to go on a book. I <laughs> <laughs> got a book coming? You gotta... Maybe. We'll see. That's a good idea. Yeah. You guys should, you should do a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, uh, I, we don't want to hold you too long, man. Um, I think this is uh, very, very valuable. And to get to know... The person behind the celebrity, mm-hmm. and you are—you are a real cool person. Yeah. <laughs> like a person I hang out with. You yeah. know what I mean? Like you, yeah. you see celebrities, they're just whatever they are. They're so distant. I'm like, yo, he'd be a really cool best friend. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm just a okay, regular Vince, dude. He's coming for you. <laughs> I'm ready. I want to hang out with you guys. Let's play golf. Can we do that? It's a regular dude, man. We just—we just like to keep it very low key. Who are some of your um, closest uh, industry relationships, though? Well, the guys in Boys to Men for sure. I mean, we've lifelong friends with those guys. Uh, Timberlake. Um, but mostly athletes, you know. Uh, you know, Scott Burrell, who played with the Bulls, mm-hmm. you know, during that, he's a really good friend of ours. Um, and no one, I mean, I'm, I'm cool with Tiger, cool with Michael, cool, you know, these <laughs> the guys I really look up to. Uh, I believe in life you should friend up. Mm-hmm. You should friend up. <laughs> I'm sorry if that seems elitist. I just call friends with Mike. Like he was a fan. He was a fan, and at the time, his first wife was a fan too. So they came to some shows, mm-hmm. and we became cool. And because I hoop, you know, we have that in common. Right. We play golf. Did you play against did Mike? Play I did not play golf against Mike, and I didn't play basketball against him either. No, okay, no. But I did when he was shooting Space Jam. They built a gym for him at Warner Brothers, so we'd all go and play. Um, the times I played, he was working out mm-hmm. or he was on set, um, but it didn't, it didn't work out. Could you have beat him in a one-on-one game? No, nobody can beat him. <laughs> right. Just nobody. wanted to make sure. Couldn't beat him now. Right. <laughs> if I was 26 then, right. he's, you know, and the guys on his own team can't beat him playing one-on-one right, right, now. Right, right, and they right. play in the league. Well, how is Mike behind the scenes? Michael Jordan is, again, one of these guys who, while you're with him, you, you won't realize that he knows who he is. Mm-hmm. But he might do something that then reminds you that he does know who right. he is. I'm not going to tell you the exact story, but we were in Vegas, and he was gambling, and he wasn't even using his own money. And he was still gambling like it was his own. And I'm not going to tell you what he did, but... <laughs> See, I want the stories like that, man. You can't talk about stories. You got stories, right? Okay, so... Steve Wynn owned the Bellagio at the time. He mm-hmm. sold it again and built his other casinos across the street. It's my last toy, and I got to leave. Okay. So he, the Bulls are there playing in an exhibition game in the summer, right before, uh, at the end of the summer, going into training camp. So he gives all the players, Steve Wynn gives the players money to play. Not a lot, you know, but to keep them in the casino, whatever the case may be. Oh. So Michael's playing blackjack, just him and the deal. I'm standing there. Now, remember, he's not playing with his own money. All right. He gets uh, 18 or whatever, or 13, 
He wants an eight. He tells the dealer, I want an eight. Remember, it's not his own money. Dealer gives him a face card. He takes the face card and he throws it back at her and says, I said, I want an eight. <laughs> oh my goodness. All right, look, man, thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial and then we're going to have you close this out, okay? Let's take uh, 30 seconds. This episode is sponsored, as always, by The Morning Meetup, The Morning Meetup, the only community that gathers entrepreneurs every single day, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday, to help you grow your business, start your business. I started it, yes, but the community is what makes the community what it is, okay? We have over 300 entrepreneurs that gather every single day from all across the country um, just to connect and fellowship. I believe if you're in the right environment for success, you'll become successful. So go to themorningmeetup.com. Donnie Wiggins. And this program is also brought to you today by Six Figure EDU. That is Six Figure EDU. One more time. Six Figure Figure EDU. EDU, The only community that helps to create and develop coaches and consultants from scratch. And that means if you have a book inside of you, if you want to create a program, if you want to coach one-on-one, you have some services that you want to offer, you need to come and see us inside of Six Figure EDU. And also... If you are an entrepreneur, preferably service-based, a coach, a consultant, you do some kind of a service, uh, I help you to take the overwhelm out of what to post on social media. So don't struggle with that anymore. Be consistent with your content. Join us by texting the words POST to PAID to 404-737-2767. Cool. Man, uh, thank you so much for coming by. You got um, Go ahead and let everybody know how they can find you. Any projects you got coming up? Uh, latest record is Exodus. You can find that on srg.com and everywhere you stream or love music. Uh, my Instagram is Brian McKnight 23 uh, Twitter at It's B McKnight, and Facebook backslash Brian McKnight. Cool. And close this out with a word. Um, there's We have a big uh, group of entrepreneurs or people who have a dream and they um, may be discouraged at the time. Just mm-hmm. close this out with a word of wisdom, something you can share with them. Well, when I was a kid, we had this, my mother had these plaques in the house of all these sayings. And this one, <laughs> as my family laughs at me, I, I live it every day. Uh, success comes in cans. Now you might say, how does success mm-hmm. come in a can? Because failure comes in cans. Mm. <laughs> you can't really close it out any better than that right there. Yeah, <laughs> That's man. it. Again, uh, make sure you go follow Brian McKnight. Make sure you follow uh, Miss Donnie Wiggins and myself, okay? So go get you some social proof. Go build something and then teach somebody else how you did it. We are out of here. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.